0: on the personal word of God, Jesus Christ, but in order to find out about that personal word, we've got to go to the written word, the Bible, because the Bible is the whole source of information that we have concerning the person of Jesus Christ. I've had the privilege of teaching this on the college level uh, for a number of years, and uh, you have in front of you the syllabus that I use right there in the classroom, and so this is going to be like the classroom situation. We're going to take you through step by step. So we purposely set it out in such a way where we give you some basic information, but you can take notes and fill in blanks and that type of thing along the way. That helps you to keep from falling asleep. You can follow along and keep attention. But also, at the end of this, you can take this home and have it with you if you want to keep reviewing and studying from it all the while. that's one of the reasons for giving it to you in this form of a format. But the first major thing we want to look at, and this is really Roman numeral two in our outline, is the eternality of Jesus Christ. The eternality of Jesus Christ. We point out that this deals with the fact that Christ has always existed as a person from eternity past, with no beginning and no end. Obviously, we want to see biblical evidences for Christ's eternality, and there are a number of those. The first one we point out is direct biblical statements. The Bible directly states that Jesus Christ is eternal, with no beginning and no end. If you have your Bibles, turn please to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. The prophet Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Probably many of you can quote this because we hear it quite frequently in the Christmas season. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you be little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of you shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler of Israel. Now notice, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. In fact, some translations say from eternity. Notice a couple of things here. This clearly refers to the future Messiah and the fact that when he would become incarnated in human flesh, he'd be born in the city of Bethlehem. But notice, his birth was not his beginning. Notice his goings forth are from long ago. In other words, he existed a long time before he was ever born into the world. But even more than that, he existed from long ago, from the days, literally, of eternity. The days of eternity. Interestingly, uh, a great Old Testament scholar by the name of Franz Delitzsch, German scholar who did believe the the Bible is the word of God, made this statement about that last part of Micah 5.2, Uh, From the days of everlasting to the days of eternity, he said, We do not have a stronger expression in the Hebrew language to indicate eternal existence than this one at the end of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Indicated, the Hebrew language is clearly emphasizing that this one who was born as a baby in the city of Bethlehem, that was not his beginning. He existed forever, without beginning and without end, even throughout eternity. Another line of evidence for the scriptures of his eternality, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Unto us a child is born. Deity is not born, but humanity is. This indicated that future Messiah would be a human being while he'd be here in the world. But unto us a son is given. Whose son? God's son. It's like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We're going to see later on the word son for him being the son of God is an implication of absolute deity. So this was saying some 700 years before Jesus was born in the world, he would be both God and man, both God and man here in the world. But then it goes on to say that his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. Everlasting Father could also be translated eternal father. Again, an expression of eternity. Now, that's not saying that he's God the Father. It's the idea that he's an eternal being. When he exercises the rule in the world, he will exercise it like a loving father over his children. But notice a description again of eternality to Jesus Christ. Eternal Father. Look again, please. If you would, at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Gospel of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. i I'd stated earlier that uh, Jesus is the personal word of God. And John is indicating that here in John chapter 1, beginning of verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, indicating that he's not the same as God the Father, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's not God the Father, but on the other hand, He was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Now that expression, in the beginning was the Word. What John is saying by inspiration for the Holy Spirit is this. When everything that had a beginning first began... When everything that had a beginning first began, the Word already was there. And when you get down to verse 14, by Word, John makes a very clear reference to Jesus, where verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh, and literally, tabernacle among us. And we be out of His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father. So by the Word of God, He's referring to Jesus Christ. But notice he's saying here in John chapter one, verses one through three, when everything that had a beginning first began, the world was already there in existence. He existed before everything that had a beginning. So he existed before time, which means he existed back in eternity past. He's an eternal being, an eternal being. Second. A line of evidence for his deity, I'm sorry, his eternality is not only direct biblical statements, but Christ's deity, Christ's deity. In uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, in verse 17, we have a reference about God the Father. Now unto the God eternal, uh, invisible, immortal, the only wise God, the honor and glory forever and ever and ever. Notice there it's talking about God the Father, he's eternal. He's eternal, and the fact that God the Father, as a divine being, is eternal, that in- indicates that the nature—it's the nature of deity to be eternal. God the Father, as a divine being, is eternal because His nature is that of deity. It's the nature of deity to be eternal. Now, that's true of God the Father. We're going to look later on evidence for Christ's deity, but going to the assumption that he is deity, we can conclude here, since Christ is deity, since Christ is deity, he too must be eternal. Since God the Father is deity, he's eternal by nature. Since Christ is deity, we'll see the evidence for that later on, that implies he too is an eternal being. He existed in eternity past, without beginning, without end. The third line of evidence for Christ's eternality is Christ's role in creation. we were here in John chapter 1, and look again, if you would please, what it says about Jesus, verses 2 and 3. The same was in the beginning with God. In other words, he was already there in existence with God when everything that began had a beginning. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. So according to John chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, John is stating that Christ created everything that had a beginning, or that was created. He's the one who actually created created everything that had a beginning, or was created. And the only way he could have created everything that had a beginning is if he existed before that which had a beginning. And so the fact that he created everything that had a beginning strongly indicates he existed in eternity past before time began and before things that had a beginning first began. Look, if you would, please, at Colossians chapter 1, Paul's epistle to the Colossians, chapter 1, and we'll look at verses 16 and 17. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. In the context, Paul's talking about Jesus Christ. He says, For by Him were all things created that are in heaven. That would include even the angels, because they were created and they exist in the heavenly realm. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. The earth is a visible part of of what He created. The invisible were angels. Angels are spirit beings by nature, and by nature we cannot see them unless they make a very unique, special appearance. But that was always temporary, even in Bible times. So he's saying here, Christ created not only the earth, which is visible to human beings, but even angels that are invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, again, references to invisible angelic beings, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. In other words, again, he existed before all these things that he created. And in him, all things consist, literally are held together. Jesus Christ existed before everything that was created. He's the one that created everything that's ever been created. And he's the one who holds all of creation together and functioning the way that it is. As part of his God assigned task. By the way, that is an is implication. Who was holding the world together when Christ was in Mary's womb? He was, in Rava's deity. Even while his humanity was being formed in Mary's womb, he was holding the whole universe together, as the creator and the one who was responsible of holding it together and keeping it functioning the way that God ordained for the universe to function. So that here again, just as in John chapter 1, Paul is making it very clear that Christ created everything that had a beginning or that was created. And the implication again is he existed in eternity past before all things that were created. He existed before time as a divine being. Now, look at capital letter B in our outline. The problem of Colossians 1.15. Look please at Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. The verse just before the two verses we just looked at says of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. Now notice the firstborn of every creature, the firstborn of every creature, a creature that could be translated the firstborn of all creation. This is a verse that Jehovah's Witnesses and others who deny the deity and eternality of Jesus Christ like to point to and say, look, the Apostle Paul is saying. That Christ was the first one created. He's the firstborn of all creation. That he was the first one created by God. And therefore they say, he's not an eternal being. He was created by God himself. He's the first thing that God created. And therefore, he didn't exist in eternity past. He was the first thing created. We have to deal with a question here. Does the expression, the firstborn of all creation, mean... That Christ was the first thing created? And the answer is no. That's not what it means at all, as Jehovah's Witnesses claim. Paul is not saying that Christ is a created being. And there are evidences for that conclusion. First, number one, Paul wrote Colossians against a heresy known as Gnostic Judaism. That's G N O S T I C. Gnostic Judaism. It was, a, it was a false religion that took some elements of Judaism and Gnosticism and mixed them together. Paul wrote Colossians against a heresy called Gnostic Judaism, and that heresy taught that Christ was part of creation, that Christ was a created being. God created him, the first one. Paul is writing Colossians against that heretical viewpoint, It says, therefore, When he says he was the firstborn of all creation, he's not saying Christ was the first one created. He's fighting against that in making this statement to show that what Gnostic Judaism said was totally false and totally wrong and contrary to reality. Second indication that the firstborn of all creation does not mean that Christ was the first thing created. The idea that Christ was created goes contrary to the context. Goes contrary to the context. The context teaches that he created everything that has been created. We just saw that in verses 16 and 17. Now, if he created everything that was ever created, in order for him to create that, he would have had to have been in existence. And if he was the first thing created, and yet he created everything that was created, you're saying that almost like he created himself. Do you see the point here? If he was the first thing created, that he would have been the very first thing that was ever created. And yet, the scriptures say, verse 16, 17, he created everything that's ever been created. So he couldn't have been the first thing created whatsoever. Third thing to see here that goes against that view that he was the first thing created. There was a Greek word, protoktistos, protoktistos, which meant first created. There was a Greek word in Paul's day, well known which meant first created. And what's significant here is this. Paul did not use that word here in the statement, firstborn of creation. Paul did not use that here, nor is it ever used of Christ anywhere in the Bible. The Greek word which meant first created. In light of that, number four, The word that Paul did use in verse 4, prototokos. Prototokos has two connotations to it. The Greek word prototokos that Paul used, we used here about firstborn. That word prototokos has two connotations. The first one is priority. Priority. We'll see the significance of that later on. And the second connotation is sovereignty. Those are two connotations the Greek word prototokos carried with it priority and sovereignty. Now, the first connotation, priority, had two possible subconnotations. Just taking that first connotation, priority, it had two possible subconnotations. One of those was the first part of something, the first part of something. And the other sub-connotation was existence before something. Either the first part of something, the other sub-connotation was existence before something. Well, how do you know which sub-connotation is involved here? The answer is this. The context of this word, prototokos, the context in which you find it, determines which sub-connotation is intended. Does it intend the idea... Uh, the the first part of something, or here in Colossians one, is it indicate existence before something? The context will determine which subconnotation it is. The Colossians one context demands the subconnotation of existence before something, of existence before something. I mean, look again at the context, and and notice how Paul begins verse sixteen with the word for. He's going to explain what he means by uh, the, the firstborn of all creation. For by him were all things created, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things. The context is saying he existed before. All things that were created. He existed before all things that were created. Which says, in this context, the word prototokos, which is translated firstborn in verse 15, has that second sub connotation that as the firstborn of all creation, as Paul's way of saying, he existed before creation. He existed before creation. And so, therefore, what Paul is teaching here in Colossians 1.15 is, number one, Christ existed before creation, there's priority. He existed before creation, or priority, and is sovereign over creation, sovereign over creation, which is implied by the last part of verse 17, by him all things consist. He sovereignly holds all of creation together. And keeps it going every moment of its existence. So, the word again translated firstborn for Christ in verse 15 is indicated in this context Christ existed before creation, and he is sovereign over creation. So, there's a lot of biblical evidence to the fact that Jesus Christ is an eternal being, he existed before everything that had a beginning. He existed from eternity past without beginning and will have no end uh, any time in the future. Now having looked at the eternality of Christ, the next thing we we'll want to look at is the preexistence of Christ. The preexistence of Christ. We point out that here the emphasis is not necessarily the idea that Christ is eternal. But that Christ existed before his incarnation in human flesh. He existed before his incarnation in human flesh. And so evidences for Christ's pre-existence before his incarnation, obviously the first evidence is he's eternal. And so certainly if he's eternal, then he did exist before he became incarnated in human flesh. So that's one evidence for his pre-existence before his incarnation in human flesh, the fact that he's eternal. But look then at, please, at the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 8, and specifically verse 58, but to get the context, we'll begin with verse 56, John chapter 8, verse 56. Jesus was confronted by some of his enemies there in the land of Israel, and he said to them, "Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad." Then said the Jews to him, "You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham?" They said, w- w- "Wait a minute, Abraham." Lived about 2,000 years ago. You're not even uh, 50 years old yet. And you're trying to tell us. That you saw Abraham. And that before Abraham existed. Uh, you know. Or your father Abraham. Rejoiced to see my day. And saw it was glad. Jesus said to them. Verily, verily I said to you. Before Abraham was. I am. Before Abraham was. I am. Now. Notice what he's indicating here. He said, before Abraham came into being. You know, before Abraham was. In other words, before Abraham came into being, I was already there. Before Abraham came into being, I was already there. I was already in existence before he came into being. Now, notice... He's saying, I am. That's should ring a bell to you. Remember when Moses was on the backside of the desert, tending the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro, and one day he looked out on the horizon and he saw a bush burst into flames. That wasn't too unusual. It was kind of a, a desert, backside of a, a desert. But the unusual thing here was that bush continued to burn, but it wasn't consumed by the fire who said to Moses, this is not ordinary fire. And so out of curiosity, he drew near to that burning bush to observe this strange phenomenon. And all of a sudden, a voice spoke to him out of the bush and saying, remove the sandals from off your feet because you're standing on the holy ground. And here was somebody talking to him. When you look at the context there in Exodus, that being was talking to him, was there to appoint him to be God's human deliverer of the people of Israel from their bondage and slavery in Egypt. And this being said to Moses, we're going to send you to Egypt, and you're going to deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt. And of course, Moses knew that Pharaoh was in complete control of them there. And uh, on top of that, he was concerned If I go to the people of Israel and say, God's appointed me to be your human deliverer, they're probably going to laugh at me and say, yeah, yeah, tell us another good story. He said, I know they're going to say to me, you know, to see, is this authoritative what you're saying? Who is it that has sent you to do this? And so whoever you are that's speaking to me, who are you that can give substantial authority for me to go and say to them, this is what I've been told? And what that being said, you tell them that I am has sent you. I am has sent you. In other words, the one who exists in and of himself. Without beginning, without end. I am who I am. I exist in and of myself. An eternally existing being. And we are convinced that was the Lord Jesus. And that's what he's indicating to these these people here. When they said, "Now wait a minute, Abraham lived some 2,000 years ago. You're not even 50 years old yet, and you're trying to persuade us to believe that you existed back there when Abraham was there, and either he saw you or you saw him. Who are you, trying to kid?" And his response to them was this: "Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am." Now, he didn't say, "I was." But I am. Why did he purposely use the present tense instead of I was? He's going right back to the Bernie Bush experience. I'm the one who spoke to Moses. There at the burning Bush. Which says I existed back then before I became incarnated in human flesh. I'm the I am. The self-existing one. I existed before I became incarnated in human flesh. In other words, he was claiming really deity for himself is what he was doing. And notice, they got the message. They understood what he was saying. Verse 59, then took they up stones to cast at him. For they thought he was claiming deity for himself, and they thought he was only a man. And for a man to claim deity for himself was blasphemy, and under the, uh, the law of God, that kind of a person was to be stoned to death. So they took up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. To so that statement, before Abraham was, "I am," he was claiming preexistence, pre-existence, even before Abraham came into existence here upon planet Earth. Another evidence for his pre-existence before he became incarnate was the pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. And we heard that Dr. Whitcomb in our previous session talk about, rather briefly, a preincarnate appearance of Christ. Recorded for us in the book of Judges, chapter 13, where the mother of Samson had a unique being appear to her. She had not been able to conceive and give birth to a child. And this unique being appeared to her out of nowhere and promised to her that she was going to give birth to a son. And then gave her strict instructions on how she was to rear him. And prevent him from uh, eating certain kinds of foods or or drinking wine and that type of thing. And she went and told her husband. This unique person, you know, spoke to me and said, I'm going to conceive and give birth to a son. And so her husband was actually seeking and wanting that person to appear again. And later on, that person did appear again when he was there. And uh, communicated to them. And what's interesting is this. Her husband said to this unique being, what is your name? What is your name? As Dr. Whitcomb indicated, that being's response was, my name is wonderful. Wonderful. Now what's interesting, that's exactly the same name, word, that's in Isaiah 9. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son son is given. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Same Hebrew word for Wonderful there as here in Judges chapter 13, verses 1 through 23. And he, he went into fire again to ascend to heaven, to ascend to heaven. It's interesting to tie in again with that burning bush, fire. This unique being appearing with some unique fire that doesn't burn. And it's interesting to see what this lady's husband said after this unique being disappeared into heaven with fire, who said his name is wonderful. He said to his wife, We have seen God, we will surely die. We have seen God, we have surely died. He was convinced. This was not an angel as such. We think of a created angel. This was a divine being that was there and said his name is wonderful. Name is wonderful. So here's one of these, what we often call pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus before he became incarnated in human flesh. And so the fact that that took place before he became incarnated in flesh, again, indicates he existed before he became incarnated in human flesh his conception in Mary's womb and his birth in the world was not the beginning of Jesus Christ whatsoever. Then look, if you would please, at John chapter 1, verse 14. We had looked earlier that John in first 1 refers to Jesus as the word in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. But then in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacle among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice here, the word translated became means he became what he was not before. He became what he was not before. The word became flesh. He became something that he was not before. And that meaning implies he existed in another form or another way, another form of existence before he became incarnated in the flesh. He became what he was not before. He became flesh. And by the way, here the word flesh is referring to humanity. He became a human being. He became something he was not before. Before incarnation, he was not a human being. But he existed before he became incarnated in human flesh, before he became a human being. So this again is indicating pre-existence of Jesus before he became incarnated in human flesh. Now having looked at his eternality, and then his pre-existence before incarnation, the next thing we want to look at is the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ. And what we mean by that is that Christ is fully God. Fully God, possessing all the attributes of deity. He's fully God, possessing all the attributes of deity. Again, what are the biblical evidences for his deity? Well, Kepler A, first might of evidence, the Old Testament ascribes deity to Messiah. The Old Testament ascribes deity to Messiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, And his name shall be called Wonderful, now notice, the Mighty God. The Eternal Father. The Mighty God. That's the description of deity. The Messiah will be more than a man. He will be the Mighty God. And yet, the other scriptures indicate he's distinct from God the Father. He's not the same person as God the Father But what it means is, he has the same divine nature, with all the same divine attributes, as God the Father. He's the mighty God, with all full divine nature, all the attributes of deity. Same divine nature, attributes of deity, as God the Father. Another Old Testament passage that describes deity, the Messiah, is in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. This is an amazing prophetic passage that God gave to Daniel, and uh, in which Daniel was given a vision or a dream with uh, four beasts to come out of the sea, one after the other. And God was foretelling here a progression of Gentile world dominion. From Daniel's day, when Babylon was the great Gentile power, right up until the second coming of the Messiah, back to planet Earth, to set up God's theocratic future kingdom here upon planet Earth. And the fourth beast, well, the first beast represented Babylon. The second beast, a large, lopsided sided bear, represented Medo-Persia, who, by the way, conquered Babylon 539 B.C. And then the, the third beast, a four-headed, four-winged leopard, represented Greece, which would be the next great Gentile power, which conquered Medo-Persia by 331 B.C., and then the fourth beast was a nondescript beast. It was so ferocious and all-powerful, there was no living animal, that could fit the description of this one. And that indicated that Greece would be conquered by a fourth great Gentile kingdom. And of course, that was ancient Rome. And Rome had conquered at least Greece, the nation of Greece, and other parts of his empire by the, the 60s BC. But, as Daniel was watching that fourth beast, God began to reveal that that beast Fourth kingdom would have several stages of existence, and the the last phase of it in the future, be the last great form of Gentile world dominion, would be ruled over by a, bar, a very powerful ruler that in, in the dream of Daniel two is called the little horn. We know him from other passages. First, first John chapter two is the Antichrist, and it was revealing that the last great form of Gentile world dominion, dominating the world before the second coming Messiah to set up God's kingdom in the future, would be ruled over by the Antichrist. It would be a kind of a revived form of the Roman Empire, but ruled and dominated by the Antichrist, who in the middle of the future tribulation through, would make the blasphemous claim that he's God. Well, that part of Daniel's dream and vision was all earthly scene. But when you come to verse 9 of Daniel chapter 7, the scene shifts from an earthly scene to a heavenly scene where Daniel sees, uh, in visionary form, God the Father seated upon a judgment throne up in heaven. And while God is sitting on the judgment throne up in heaven, the Antichrist is down here upon planet Earth spotting off all incredible claims about himself, that he is Almighty God, and people should worship him as God. This is a heavenly courtroom judgment scene where God is getting ready to judge and destroy the last great form of Gentile world dominion Coming up to the second coming of the Messiah. Well, while that judgment seat is going on, all of a sudden that judgment seat, there's another being that appears. One like a son of man who comes with the clouds of heaven. Who comes with the clouds of heaven. Now, when you go to Matthew chapter 24, uh, verses 30 and 31, where Jesus talks about a second coming. After the future tribulation period, he says that he comes as a son of man on the clouds of heaven. Going right back to Daniel 7. So Jesus indicated, Matthew 24, verse 30-31, he's that unique being that appeared in the heavenly courtroom scene in Daniel's vision there, in Daniel chapter 7, beginning with verse 9. But notice his description. He's like a son of man. Now, son of man implies he would be humanity. But the word like implies he's going to be more than just humanity. He's like a son of man, but he's more than that. In other prophetic scriptures, made it very clear. He'd be a God-man. But one of the things that implied he'd also be a God-man is notice how he comes on the clouds of heaven. Son of man comes on the clouds of heaven. And Daniel sees God turning over to the son of man, the rule of the whole world system. In other words, God in heaven before Messiah comes out of heaven to get rid of the last great form of Gentile world dominion, God in heaven turns over to him the rule of the whole world system here upon planet Earth so that Messiah can set up God's future theocratic kingdom. But notice how he comes on the clouds of heaven. What's the significance of that? Well, the Old Testament scriptures made it very clear that the clouds are the chariot of deity, the chariot of God. I want to turn to Psalm 104, verse 3. Psalm 104, verse 3. Very intriguing statement. Psalm 104 and verse 3. As talking, in verse 3, it's talking about God. In fact, to get the context, let's begin with verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God. Thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty. Who covers yourself with light as with a garment, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. Now look at verse 3. Who lays the, the beams of his chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds his chariot. This is very clear stated that its deity is God that comes on the clouds of heaven. Absolute deity. Remember uh, when Jesus was on trial before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders? And they were demanding, tell us, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And he said, you said so. But then he said, the day is coming when you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. The clouds of heaven. What did the high priest do when he heard that statement? He tore his robes. And he said, you've heard it with your own mouth, what he said. What is your opinion? They all said he's worthy of death. They knew as soon as he said. He would come to the clouds of heaven. He was saying I'm deity. Because only deity comes with the clouds of heaven. And they thought he was only a man. And so they thought by his describing deity himself. As the one who comes to the clouds of heaven. He was guilty of blasphemy. And according to their law. A blasphemer is to be stoned to death. So that. That whole description of the Messiah. In Daniel's dream. He is. Like a son of man. He is mankind, but he's more than that. Because he comes on the clouds of heaven, and only deity comes on the clouds of heaven. Which again, is an Old Testament way of ascribing absolute deity to the Messiah. Absolute deity to the Messiah. And that's why Jesus, did that again in Matthew 24, says when he comes out of heaven, in his second coming, after the end of the future tribulation period, he will come as the son of man, On the clouds of heaven. He's man, but he's also deity. Absolute deity at his second coming. So the Old Testament described deity of the Messiah. We gave you just two examples of that. There are other examples as well. Secondly, smaller to be, the name Emmanuel given to Christ. Emmanuel given to Christ is a scripture of deity to the Messiah. And of course this goes back to the virgin birth prophecy, Daniel I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, that a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a child, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. You shall call his name Emmanuel. Look at how Matthew, uh, dealt with that particular statement in Matthew chapter 1, where it records an angel that came to Joseph to explain to Joseph Mary's pregnancy. That it's not what Joseph thought. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23. In fact, let's again to get to context. Verse 18 The birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when his mother Mary was literally betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, before they had physical union with each other, she was found with child of the, of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought of these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, you son of David, fear not to take unto you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. She shall bring forth a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And then Matthew says, Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the, of the Lord by the prophet, saying, he goes back to Isaiah 7.14, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means what? What's being interpreted is, God with us. The angel that God sent to Joseph to explain his wife's pregnancy, said so she's going to give birth to a unique child. You're not the father of this, nor was any other man the father of this child, the human father of this child. The Spirit of God caused a supernatural conception in your wife's womb, because is going to be a very unique child It's going to be born in the world. You will assign to him a human name, Jesus, which means Savior, because he will save his people from their sins. But he's also going to have the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's going to be deity, incarnate in human flesh, tabernacle with us in the midst of a of human race here in the world. That Old Testament name foretold over 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah 7:14 14, was saying he will be absolute deity, Emmanuel, God with us, but deity incarnated in human flesh. In human flesh. Another line of evidence. uh, For his deity. Kepler to see. God exhorted. All the angels. To worship Christ. God exhorted all the angels to worship Christ. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. And verse 6. Hebrews. Chapter 1. And verse 6. By the way, the only part of Hebrews 1 is an incredible passage about who Jesus is and his nature and all the rest. And look, if you would, please, what he says here. And again, again, let's get the context. Verse 5, for unto which of the angels said he, said the Father at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten you. Again I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings in the the first begotten into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. God is exhorting all the angels to worship Jesus Christ. To worship Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible makes it very clear that only deity is to be worshipped. Only deity is to be worshipped. Human beings are not to be worshipped. Only deities be worshipped. Uh, for example, in Acts chapter 10, verses 25 and 26, when Peter obeyed the Holy Spirit's command to go over to the home of a, of a pure Gentile, Cornelius, represent Christ to him, when Peter walked into Cornelius' house, Cornelius bowed down right away to worship Peter, and Peter said, stand up, don't worship me, I'm a man just like you are. He's realizing, as a man, I'm not to be worshipped. Later on, when Paul and Barnabas uh, went to a city on their missionary journey, you can read this in Acts 14, verses 11 through 18. Paul performed a miracle of healing of a lame man. And the pagan people there got so excited, they ran immediately to their pagan priests and said, two of the gods have come down from heaven to our city. And obviously just performed this incredible miracle of healing. These are not mere men. These are two of the gods come down to our city. And right away, that pagan priest got all of his paraphernalia and came running down the street with all this. And so they were going to set up a worship place there where they're going to bow down and worship Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas said, in essence, don't do that. You know, we're men just like you are. You're only to worship the true and the living God who created the universe and created mankind. Peter... And Paul and Barnabas knew men are not to be worshipped. Only deities to be worshipped. Interestingly, decades later, Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10. There was an angel that appeared to the apostle John. And John's first impulse, he saw this is obviously a supernatural being that came out of heaven. John fell on his face to worship the angel. And the angel in essence said, don't do that. You know, worship only God. Worship only God. And then later on, in, in Revelation chapter 22, verses 8 and 9, an angel appeared to God, again to John, and John's immediate response was, this is a supernatural being, glory to great light." He, he bowed down to worship, and again that angel in essence said, don't do that. I'm a servant of God just as you are. Worship only God. So that the Bible and God forbade human beings to be worshipped. And so the very fact that here in Romans chapter, Hebrews chapter 1 uh, verse 6, God exhorted all the angels to worship Jesus Christ even while he was incarnated in human flesh. This is God's way of saying he's absolute deity. He is absolute deity that's now incarnated in human flesh and because he's absolute deity, you angels worship him. I take it, God will say, just as you worship me, you worship him. Which is God's way of ascribing deity to Jesus Christ, even while He was here incarnated in human flesh. Now let me take one more evidence here, but this we'll have to close this evening. It's human beings worship Christ. Human beings worship Christ, which is their way of acknowledging He's absolute deity. Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. Remember the Magi, the wise men. When they discovered that Jesus had been born in Bethlehem, they came and they bowed down before that infant and were told they worshipped the infant Jesus. They worshipped the infant Jesus. Which in essence was their way of saying, it must be more than just a human child. He must be a divine being. Uh, Look at uh, Matthew chapter 14, verse 33. Matthew chapter 13. And verse 43. Then shall the righteous shine forth you know, I must have a. I'm oh, sorry, 33. I'm not even reading my own print here. Verse 33, thank you. It would help if I get the right chapter, wouldn't it? Okay, now we got. Thank you. Chapter 14, verse 33. Then they that were in the ship, as a result of Jesus calming the storm, Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, you are the Son of God. You are the Son of God. And we give you two other references here. One, again, from uh, Matthew 28, where after Jesus rose from the dead, some of those who saw him bowed down before him and worshipped him. And uh, John chapter 9, verse 38, gives the example as well. And here's the interesting thing. Jesus accepted their worship. He didn't rebuke them like the angel did when John thought that before them. He didn't rebuke them and say, hey, you know, don't worship me, worship only God. Jesus accepted worship of himself by human beings. Which says that he recognized his absolute deity incarnated in human flesh. So these are some of the evidences from the word of God for the deity of Christ. And Lord willing, tomorrow we will pick up this point and we'll see where he himself claimed deity for himself and other evidences for his deity as well, and some of the significance of that. But keep in mind, he is an eternal being. He existed from eternity past without beginning. He existed before everything that was ever created. He's the one that brought into existence everything that was ever created. And his sovereign over it holds it together, keeps it functioning. Every moment of every day. He existed before... His incarnation in human flesh. He had pre existence before that. But also, he's absolute deity. Even while incarnating in human flesh, he was absolute deity. He did not change his deity one bit when he was conceived in Mary's womb and was born as a baby boy into the world. Absolute deity. And, uh, we're going to see some interesting things about that. Because tomorrow night we'll probably get into what happened in the incarnation and such things. As what's the relationship then between his absolute deity, his absolute humanity, together in one person? So we seen implications of, of these kind of relationships that we have concerning him in the word of God. God our Father, we worship you together with your Son, Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the only true and living God we thank you for Jesus who existed from eternity past together with you without beginning was willing during a period of time to enter into man's sphere of existence here upon planet earth allow himself as a divine being to take upon himself humanity to become now a unique being the likes of which there wasn't before ever will be again a God man but we thank you that he did that For one reason, because he loved us so much that he realized that only if he would come and become a human being could go to the cross in our place and die as our substitute and take upon himself the full penalty and judgment for our sins and then be buried bodily in the tomb, be resurrected bodily later on, so that we as sinful human beings who could not be saved through any other means whatsoever, through works or anything else we do, except to place trust in him and him alone to be our savior. He did this so that we could be saved because he loved us, was more concerned for our welfare than his own. And so we worship you for being willing to send your son. We worship him for coming, to become incarnate, to be our savior. And we worship the Holy Spirit who applies to us the results of Jesus' death, and resurrection and the so great salvation that he provided for us. And so we do this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.